0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, the latest in the case of a Colorado doctor fired for her views on aid in dying. They clashed with the religious hospital she worked for. Then, a longtime ally on the battlefield lost U.S. protection. We'll talk about the Kurds on the Turkish-Syrian border with a former Army Special Forces officer in Colorado Springs. He served in Turkey, including at NATO headquarters there. Plus, an African-American who infiltrated the Ku Klux Klan. And I don't mean the subject of the recent movie Black Klansman. No, this story comes much earlier While he was a member, he had a
1: shotgun loaded in his home and in his office just in case.
0: And a giveaway of art from a museum. Thousands of paintings. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's begin with an update on that doctor in Golden who was fired for discussing medical aid in dying with her terminally ill patient. Dr. Barbara Morris has filed a new lawsuit against Centura Health, this time claiming she was fired unlawfully. This new complaint replaces the suit she and her patient filed in August. At that time, Dr. Morris told me she was suing the Catholic and Adventist Hospital Company because she believed their policy against Colorado's End-of-Life Options Act went too far.
2: I don't believe that a faith-based organization or actually anybody, has the right to impose their faith on somebody else. And that's what I'm standing up about in part. I'm also standing up for the patient, the patient's right to a dignified death at a time that he wants, that alleviates his suffering. And I think in all the swirling around of conversation here, we're forgetting the patient in
0: this. The timeline here is important. Centura fired Dr. Morris after she filed that original suit to change their policy. Although she'd never prescribed aid in dying drugs, the company says discussing end-of-life options violated her employment agreement. Dr. Morris's lawyer, Jason Spitalnik, says for legal reasons, a new suit was necessary once Dr. Morris was no longer employed by Centura. But the issues they're asking the court to address, he says, remained the same. That lawsuit sought clarification from the court that Centura's
3: policy conflicts with Colorado law. Now that we're suing Centura for firing Dr. Morris for filing that lawsuit, those issues about whether Centura's policy violates Colorado law Remain front and center in the case. There will be during the course of the case determinations made by the court in some capacity, whether a judge or jury about Centura's policy and about the end of life options act and other components of Colorado law and the ways that those contributed to Dr. Morris's unlawful termination.
0: Centura casts this differently. In a statement, it said, quote, The latest filing by Dr. Morris now positions this case only as an employment contract issue. The statement goes on to say Dr. Morris signed her employment agreement with Centura, expressly agreeing that she would not provide services in violation of our directives. Simply stated, this case is now about whether an employer can fire an employee for violating its policies, end quote. The patient in this case, 64-year-old Neil Mahoney, as we said, had joined Dr. Morris in the original lawsuit against Centura, but is not a party to the updated complaint. Attorney Spitalnik: Mr.
3: Mahoney is still alive. He is still undergoing treatment for his cancer. At the end of the day, because this is not a declaratory judgment case anymore, it just no longer made sense to keep him as a plaintiff in the case. But he's very much involved in the case and actively following it.
0: Lawyer Jason Spitalnik, his client Dr. Barbara Morris, is suing Centura Health after the hospital company fired her for discussing end of life options with a terminally ill patient. Turkey is now waging an offensive in neighboring Syria, the target Kurdish fighters. The Kurds played a central role in helping the United States take on ISIS, and yet Turkey's move came with U.S. help. Is this an example of the Trump administration turning its back on an ally or choosing to stand alongside a different one? Carl Schneider of the Colorado Springs World Affairs Council has some perspective. Carl, welcome to the show. Hi,
4: Ryan. Thank you very much for having me.
0: You are a former Army Special Forces officer who served in Turkey, including at NATO headquarters there. Uh, you say you understand the Turkish mantik; It's Turkish for mentality or logic. You speak Turkish. According <laughs> What's that?
4: Yes. I yeah. said yes in Turkish.
0: Ah, okay. <laughs> uh, according to the UN this morning, tens of thousands of civilians are now on the move in Syria to escape the fighting. Uh, Reportedly, some civilians already killed. What's going through
4: your mind right now? Uh, Right now, I'm thinking that the Turks are making a very big mistake. Uh, I understand their mentality. They have a long history of uh, insurgency with a Kurdish faction. And uh, I just want to clarify one thing. A Kurd is not a Kurd is not a Kurd. There are multiple factions, about five in the region. Um, Total number of Kurds are about 35, 40 million But there are different groups. Some are more violent, uh, like the PKK, and some are very peaceful and work together, like the PUK and KDP, which make up the Kurdistan Regional Government in the north there. Um, I think that the Turkish incursion into Syria is unnecessary, but given their background and their history, they think that it is appropriate for them to establish a buffer zone to keep the Kurds out. In coverage of this story, we have heard generally that the Kurds are
0: U.S. allies. Is it fair to say all Kurds are U.S. allies or that that picture, too,
4: is more complicated? That pic- it's very complicated, and I appreciate the granularity that uh, you provide here on, on, in this venue. Um, some of the Kurdish factions, like the, the Syrian Defense Forces that we've been working with, are our allies, and we've been working with them for a long time now, fighting ISIS, you know, a common enemy. Um, so they are our allies. There are other forces like the PKK who, not ne- they aren't necessarily our allies because they come from a Marxist and communist background and ideology. It sounds to me like you think
0: Turkey is taking a rather harsh approach to something that, what, could be more surgical, that is more a political problem, perhaps, than a terrorist issue?
4: Uh, help us understand how you view Turkey's action. Well, it, it could be politically, in that Turkey is a leader in the region, and they're starting to feel their oats. Under uh, Recep type Erdogan, you know, when he came into power, Turkey wanted to solidify their internal power his internal power. And now he's acting as a, a leader in the region. He wants to be the hegemon.
0: In an interview with the PBS NewsHour last night, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo denies that the U.S. gave Turkey a green light. He also said the Turks have a legitimate security concern. They have a terrorist threat to their south. What do you make of his words?
4: Uh, I'm not privy to any of the conversations that he's had and, you know, the government has had internally. But I would say that Turkey, if you take the Turks perspective, they've been fighting a civil war for decades with certain factions of the Kurds and lost between 30 and 40,000 people. So a low simmering insurgency has been in the eastern section for many, many years. So it is appropriate for them, I think, to have an interest and to take action. But I do think that they're a little heavy-handed to go in with uh, guns blazing, if you will. They could have approached it in a more peaceful manner.
0: Will you help us understand how the Kurds became an ally to the United States in the fight against ISIS?
4: Sure. Well, I mean, the Kurds, obviously living in that area, were subject to ISIS and, and, and their rule. And we have a history with the Kurds. Um, During the Desert Shield, Desert Storm that time period, we worked with the Kurds in the north and several of their factions there to uh, work against Saddam Hussein. So they are kind of in many ways have been our allies in the past. But if you remember post-Desert Storm, there was an uprising in the north where Saddam Hussein went after the Kurds and they lost about 200,000 people. And they were gassed, uh, you know nuclear, biological, chemical warfare, that type of thing. Saddam Hussein did that to them. And we kind of left them in a lurch. And unfortunately, we're doing it again. It's very short-sighted on our part, what we're doing. You say it's very short-sighted. What do you think the long-term
0: implications are of this, not only in the U.S. relationship with the Kurds, but perhaps with others who feel they had a friend, a support in the United States?
4: Ryan, that is a great question. Seldom do we think in the political world of the second and third order effects of our actions What I would see is, you know, Iran is an issue in the region if we ever have to have any uh, If we have a conflict with Iran, you know We won't have necessarily a good ally that we can work with such as the Kurds because the Kurdish population the nation the people reside in Iran Armenia Eastern Turkey, Syria in Iraq and that would be a great ally. Hmm. What, we're, what we're also telling to our allies is that if it gets tough or if the situation suits our needs, we're not necessarily going to stand with you. And that's an issue because you, you'll recall a few years ago, the Turks shot down a Russian MiG and what's going to happen when the Turks are on the ground, they get closer to closer proximity with the Russians and they have some sort of incident or flap occur. That could easily spiral into some sort of NATO uh, Chapter Five engagement, where an attack upon one is an attack upon all. So, uh, I think it's very short-sighted, and you know, we could talk of the you know possibilities and hyperbole uh, down the road, but it, it's a bad situation.
0: I'll tell you that. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. My guest from Colorado Springs is Carl Schneider with the World Affairs Council there. Uh, He is a former Army Special Forces officer who served in Turkey, including at NATO headquarters there. Uh, He speaks Turkish. And I I guess I'd like to know uh, what you think of the administration's claim that this is about a general drawdown of troops and presence in the Middle East and
4: uh, that this is part of a larger process. Um, Pardon me it is probably a part of a larger process but not being engaged has a lot of risk i think you'll you know if you read history and so on you understand that you know we weren't necessarily engaged and we got have to get involved in world war 1 we weren't engaged we withdrew had to ramp up and get involved in world war 2 And since then, we've been engaged in the world, and it's better to be engaged than not. And the troops having a small amount of special forces operatives in the area was a way for us to remain engaged. And in fact, probably the best way for us to be engaged, to uh, employ the special forces folks who understand the language, the culture, and they can, throughout their training and work with the forces, kind of bring that Western set of ideas into the arena.
0: What do you say, though, to a weary American who looks at how long wars have waged r- on in, gosh, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan and say it's, yeah. it's time for a different policy. It's time for a different approach.
4: I think um, I, I feel that I still have friends who are in the special forces and the military and, you know, it, it wears on them individually and, and the families. I understand, too, that the, you know, the nation is kind of wary of uh, these engagements. I would, I would suggest that investing in diplomacy, investing in the State Department, filling those ambassadorial positions that are empty is probably a better way to go than military forces. What do you make of the relationship between
0: President Trump and Erdogan in Turkey? Uh, I think they're
4: probably two peds in a pod. (laughs) They are uh, both uh, strong leaders. They are right now, uh, President Erdogan, he's done a great job uh, in in his terms of solidifying his authoritarian power. And I know he likes to do things uh, without question. And President Trump is, you know, he is a strong leader um, and they probably see things eye to eye on a lot of matters. What will you be looking for in the days ahead, just in about the last 30 seconds here? I would like to, see, what I'm looking forward to is the the world getting involved, the United Nations somehow get in there and make sure that there's not a humanitarian crisis that uh, further develops. Because right now, I think we're on a path to a larger humanitarian crisis there. Looking at the Associated Press here, I think there are several aid groups already calling it that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, anytime civilians are killed and you know, even military it, it is a crisis, it is it is bad. War is bad. Necessary sometimes, but in this case, I think unnecessary. Carl, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Ryan. Pleasure.
0: Carl Schneider, secretary of the Colorado Springs World Affairs Council, he joined us to discuss the conflict between Turkey and the Kurdish people in northeastern Syria. 178 people out of work in Grand Junction. Halliburton announced the mass layoffs in a filing with the State Department of Labor this week. In the past, that would have shaken the Mesa County economy to its core. But this time around, economic development folks say not so fast. Robin Brown leads the Grand Junction Economic Partnership. Robin, thanks for being with us.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: Sorry, it's under these circumstances, but I understand you're yeah. actually surp- you're surprised Halliburton had that many employees left in Grand Junction to lay off. Uh, is that true?
5: So they have um, unfortunately been uh, downsizing. I guess is probably a better word um, over the last uh, year, and so I, I did not realize we still had 170 employees there. Um, that, and that is was, that, that was, is to
0: say, there have been other layoffs uh, well before this.
5: Yeah. There have been there. I I don't know if they would call it layoffs or just downsizing, moving people to other states where they're doing doing business.
0: Yeah. Let me say that in a statement to the Grand Junction Sentinel, the company has offered many of the employees the option to relocate to other Halliburton operating areas where more activity is anticipated. Uh, But it appears many of the positions eliminated deal with hydraulic fracturing, that's one consideration that makes it costly to do business in Colorado. Will you help us understand the variables here?
5: Yeah, so the break-even point for getting, at least in western Colorado, but also on the Front Range as well, but um, to get our natural gas out of the peons Basin is higher than other, other parts of the country because of the need for horizontal fracturing to get to the gas. Um, and so because of that, when the price is low like it is right now, it it you know they lose money if if at this point they're pulling gas out of the ground and so it does not make sense to continue to operate in the peons while the, the the price of gas is as low as it is and so they they move to do operations in other other locations where it doesn't cost as much.
0: Are there other factors at play here? Do you believe?
5: So there's a lot of factors at play. It's not any one um, cause, but the price being low and that's a commodities thing. Uh, but also the regulatory environment has scared a lot of our local. Um energy producers they're worried about uh, the um, not under not knowing what's coming in the you know with the changes in the oil and gas commission and the new the new regulations that will come so there are probably places there are places that are that they probably consider more friendly to do business right now and just easier knowing what the future holds for those places so it's a combination of all of those
0: things you're speaking of Senate bill one eighty one which has been in the news a lot lately as it gets I implemented. I will say yeah. though, as our own Ben Marcus has reported. In filings with the Federal Security and Exchange Commission, some of Colorado's largest drillers now express confidence that they can easily navigate the regulations spinning out of Senate Bill 181.
5: Well, I'm not sure that I would agree with that simply because we don't have the regulations yet. They haven't been written. So um, it's hard to navigate something you don't know.
0: It's also true that some of these layoffs came in other states uh, that don't presumably have Senate Bill 181, which speaks to the kind of complicated nature of this. Uh, So previously, when oil and gas jobs had gone away, you say the impact was immediate, perhaps devastating in western Colorado. But you're cautiously optimistic that won't be the case this time. Why?
5: Uh, Just simply because we've worked really, really hard over the last five years and before that, but a really dedicated community effort over the last five years to reinvest in our community, to really focus on industries outside of energy industry, just to um, have a more diversified economy. It was interesting because in third quarter workforce report was the first time in Grand Junction's history, and this was before the Halliburton layoffs, but it was the first time ever that the number of oil and gas jobs had declined, but our economy continued to grow in the past we would have felt that decline immediately there's no hmm. there's no there's no uh delay on that uh but we did not obviously the continue the the economy continued to grow and it'll be interesting to see how that continues in fourth quarter. I think we'll probably feel one hundred and seventy eight jobs that's a lot but um hopefully not as um not as severe as we felt it in the past.
0: Robin, uh, if not all of the eggs in the basket are oil and gas, what are the eggs now? Where has Grand Junction, where has Mesa County placed its economic hopes?
5: So there's a there's a lot of things. And again, we don't want to be just any one industry. So we didn't focus on, a, you know, one other industry outside of energy. So we see, we see a lot of growth in outdoor um industry manufacturing. We see a lot of growth in manufacturing anyway. So Cors Tech recently added jobs here, advanced manufacturing. Uh, we have a company called Capco. They've added a lot of jobs. Um, so across the board we're seeing growth in a number of companies uh, in manufacturing. We're also seeing a huge growth in tech. Tech might quickly actually pass um, outdoor rec industry huh. in the, the the growth that we're seeing. I um, mean, it kind of makes sense. It's companies that are in really urban areas that have a real hard time keeping their employees for long periods of time. So they spend a lot of money to train an employee, usually software developers or something. And then they lose them, you know, over a $5,000 salary difference to a competitor. And so we're seeing a lot of companies out of California and also the front range that are just looking for a place where their employees will settle down, buy a house and stay in their job longer. Um, and then the loc- location neutral employees also, because we've done a lot of investment in our community in the last five years. So we've passed... Uh, tax to put more money back into schools, more money into public safety, more money for direct flights to our airport, and then tourism marketing. We're seeing an influx of people that can kind of work from anywhere, um, and that's everywhere from really young professionals to retirees. And so um, our we continue to see population growth, job growth, um, and our employment's still really low, which keeps us hopeful that these Um, laid off employees from Halliburton will be able to find other jobs within the community, which wasn't the case in the past.
0: Very quickly, you do see a future for oil and gas in Mesa County. How do you balance that with the threats of climate change?
5: So we are very hopeful for the... um, So we're sitting on the the second largest natural gas reserve in the country. So we have this resource that's a very important resource. Um, I think that the energy industry has done a great job of using technology to um, reduce emissions in their operations. So you know they've increased production in the last year, but I think it's by by 50 percent, but have cut emes- emissions by 70 percent. So there's some great numbers coming from energy. It's just we're beholden to the boom and bust cycle of the commodities Love industry. And so again, when when they're here, it's really good, and we'd like to keep them. When they're gone, we don't want to feel it so badly.
0: Robin Brown, executive director of the Grand Junction Economic Partnership, we spoke about mass layoffs by Halliburton this week in Mesa County. Okay, one surefire sign the temperature has dropped is that the tire pressure light comes on in my car. And judging by the response I got on Twitter about this, it's true for you, too. This is also a teachable moment, according to Skylar McKinley, spokesman for AAA Colorado. The reason
6: you're seeing your low tire pressure light come on is because the pressure your owner's manual tells you to fill to is the cold weather max, not the absolute maximum. So if you fill to that level when it's warm out, naturally you're gonna fall below it when it's cold out because tires lose about one PSI for every 10 degrees the temperature drops. My best advice would be to plan on filling your tires when it's cold out this fall and winter, or if you're filling up on a warm day, know that you can go a couple PSI above that cold weather max and your tires will be just fine. That's what they're built to handle.
0: I feel like this is something my dad should have taught me. What happened, dad? Okay, that's Skylar McKinley of AAA Colorado advising you to generously inflate when it's warm out so you can avoid that tire pressure warning light when it is cold. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a story of a Black Klansman and probably not the one you're thinking of. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.
7: When Colorado
0: legalized recreational weed all the way back in 2012, not a single line of that amendment that eventually became part of our Constitution dealt with the negative impacts of the war on drugs. But states that are looking to legalize today are thinking about those things. The big question is, will it work? Find out on the latest episode of On Something, the new podcast from CPR News. Subscribe for free wherever you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Sometimes you go cover a story and come back with something unexpected. That's what happened when I visited the Black American West Museum in Denver recently. I was there to learn about the house the museum's in, which belonged to the first black female physician in Colorado. My guide, volunteer Terry Gentry, was showing me around and asked if I'd heard of the black man who infiltrated the Ku Klux Klan. Naturally, I thought of Ron Stallworth, the Colorado Springs police officer who investigated the Klan in the 1970s. Of course, they recently made a movie about him called Black Klansman. Hello. This is Ron Stallworth calling.
8: Who am I speaking with?
0: This is David Duke.
1: Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That David Duke? Last time I checked. What can I do for
0: it? But that's not the story Gentry was referring to.
1: Black Klansman is a very important story that happened in Colorado. Earlier, in the 1920s, we had someone infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan, and that was Dr. Joseph
0: H. P. Westbrook. How is it that he would have infiltrated the Klan?
1: He had to pass as white to infiltrate. His grandmother was enslaved in Mississippi, and, of course, the slaveholder with his grandmother and the slaveholder with his mother is the reason why he's very fair-skinned. And so it was hard to tell that he was a black man. My grandmother told me the story one time that he was sitting in a meeting and the Grand Wizard said, we hear there's going to be an N-word, try to infiltrate our organization, but I don't care how blue the eyes, how blonde the hair, I can tell an N-word anywhere, and when we catch him, we're going to hang him up for public display and castrate him. And they never found out that Dr. Westbrook had infiltrated. He was sitting in the meeting when the Grand
0: Wizard said that. The idea was to get intel, essentially.
1: Yes. There were a lot of things happening during that time with the Ku Klux Klan and our state legislature and our public offices, mayor's office, governor's office, and we needed to make sure we were safe and make sure that we could move around and live our lives without fear.
0: Who is Dr. Westbrook, just in brief?
1: Dr. Westbrook was a licensed physician here in Colorado. He graduated from Meharry Medical School in Nashville. Dr. Westbrook started his medical practice in 1906. My great grandfather started his dental practice in 1907. Some people perceive Dr. Westbrook as the benevolent white man allowing this black dentist or back then colored dentist to utilize space in his office but during those times that he marched down 16th Street, my great-grandfather would watch out the window, and Dr. Westbrook would raise his hand and give him a signal to let him know which one he was in the lineup. And that way my great-grandfather knew he was safe. Do you know how long he was in the clan? My grandmother wasn't sure how long. She estimated probably about 10 years or so. She said that while he was a member, he had a shotgun loaded in his home and in his office just in case. And Dr. Westbrook passed away in 1939, and my grandmother felt like the life that he had to live eventually took its toll on his health.
0: Thank you for talking with me. Thank you very much. A surprising story of Dr. Joseph H.P. Westbrook, an African-American man who infiltrated the KKK in Denver in the early 1900s. And that was the voice of Terry Gentry, volunteer at the Black American West Museum. Legal marijuana is a billion-dollar business in Colorado, and the industry cares a lot about what happens in Washington, D.C., where Congress could let it grow or set it back. So some of the biggest players here are prepared to flex their political muscle in next year's U.S. Senate race. Here's CPR's ben to Berkland.
7: Senator Cory Gardner is seen as one of the most vulnerable Republican incumbents in the country. Democrats haven't chosen their nominee yet, but all eyes are on former two-term Governor John Hickenlooper. If Hickenlooper is the challenger, many involved in the marijuana industry say its support will likely go to Gardner.
5: Senator Gardner has stepped up in support of this industry you know, in a big way.
7: Andy Williams owns Medicine Man, a marijuana products and consulting business. In recent years, Gardner has been a strong advocate in Congress for the marijuana industry. He's sponsored bills to let states set their own policies and to let banks work with marijuana companies.
2: He went out on a limb for us, and I'll do the
5: same for him. And I'll do that with any politician, any legislator. If they're going to support our industry, I'm going to support them and vice versa. If they don't support our industry, I'm going to work against them. This industry does not forget when people are good to them. That's Christy Kelly,
7: the executive director of the Marijuana Industry Group. It has not historically endorsed candidates, and she's not sure if it will this time, but she says Gardner's work at the federal level has been instrumental. Hickenlooper's record is mixed. During his time as governor, Hickenlooper signed legislation to regulate the industry, but he also vetoed widely supported measures. One would have added autism to the list of conditions allowed for medical marijuana, and another would have let publicly traded companies invest in the state's industry. Yet during Hickenlooper's bid for the White House, he often talked about his changing views.
4: I'm a small business owner who brought that same scrappy spirit to make Colorado one of the most progressive states in America. His
7: positions are now similar to Gardner's, and on the presidential debate stage, he touted Colorado's regulations.
4: We're the first state to legalize marijuana, and we transformed our justice system in the process.
7: Hickenlooper told CPR he's proud. His administration set a, quote, gold standard for implementing marijuana legalization that has since been followed by other states. But for many who work closely with the industry, his more recent comments don't erase the past. Democratic Representative Jonathan Singer sponsored a bipartisan bill to set up marijuana tasting rooms. Hickenlooper vetoed it.
0: My jaw kind of dropped when when I saw him really taking credit for legalization in the state of Colorado when, you know, he was opposed to it to begin with. I'll give him credit where credit's due. He could have presented bigger barriers against the industry, but he was not the industry cheerleader that he certainly presented himself to be in front of the American people.
7: His successor, Governor Jared Polis, signed those marijuana bills. Rick Ritter is a strategist who helped work on marijuana legalization and is a pollster for Polis. He says he's not sure how much this issue will matter to voters, but he does think Senator Gardner's willingness to protect Colorado's industry could help him at the margins
8: he recognized that the economic benefits in the state and nationally were great and that this was a way to reach out to younger voters that Republicans have not been able to do.
7: Still, Ritter says most voters won't be aware of Gardner's record on this issue.
8: The brand of the Republican party has not been particularly good when it comes to marijuana legalization. Cory Gardner will have to swim upstream against the brand as he runs as a, if you will, a pro-cannabis candidate.
7: And Gardner's campaign says his position on marijuana is all about states' rights and quote, doing what's right for Colorado. Gardner says he's glad to have helped broaden the discussion in Congress.
0: I credit the the cannabis industry for reaching out to people and educating members of Congress about what it is and what it is not and how uh, we need a a policy framework to allow it to be safe uh, as well as uh, succeed and flourish.
7: Members of the marijuana industry say it could be a while before individuals or groups start spending money in the race, but political observers expect once they do, it'll throw yet another interesting dynamic into what's expected to be one of the country's most high-profile U.S. Senate races next year. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News.
0: When he looks around at schools, politics, even the language in this country, Tink Tinker sees that white Christian colonialism is alive and well. Tinker is a member of the Osage Nation and spent his career at Denver's Isle of School of Theology, teaching people about indigenous cultures. Next month, Tinker will receive an award for his scholarship and activism from Auburn Seminary. He'll be the first Native American and first Coloradan to receive the Walter Wink Award. We spoke with Tinker last year, shortly after he'd retired. Tink, thanks for being with us.
8: It's my pleasure to be here, Ryan. As
0: recently as the mid-1970s, Iliff itself had a book on display, and it was a gruesome example of how colonialism was still evident. I do want to warn listeners that uh, the story may be hard to hear. Tell us, tell us about this book.
8: Well, in 1985, I had just arrived at ILF. One colleague out of 20 pulled me aside and said, Tink, you need to know about this. But 11 years ago, ILF got rid of an artifact that uh, was rather horrific and it's been a secret ever since. Uh, And he told me, that there was a book on display for 80 years outside the Isle Library covered in the skin of an American Indian. An Indian man had been killed back east. Uh, His skin had been flayed and tanned and turned into a number of trinkets, including the cover for this book of Christian history. I was stunned. If I had known about this before I took the job, I might not have taken the job hmm. because this is such an offense to Indian people. But I sat on the secret for a while. I did go around to other colleagues and none of them knew anything about it, ostensibly, because they'd been sworn to secrecy by the president uh, 10 years before. Really? There had uh, been a pact not to talk about it. Oh, yes. Uh, when When the president of the school, handed the cover, which was separated from the book. The book is still in the Isle of uh, Library, buried Indeed. somewhere, uh, no longer on public display. Uh, he ple- he asked the American Indian movement to pledge themselves to secrecy about the transaction. They took the cover, took it up north to a medicine man who uh, took care of it in a respectful way, interred it, uh, And the American Indian Movement people told Iliff, if anybody learns about this, it will be from your side, not from ours. Their concern was to take care of an ancestor, not to get publicity out of the event. Mm. After 30 years, I decided I'm a member of the American Indian Movement. And I shouldn't blow the lid off of this, but I'm also Iliff School of Theology, so I can do it. So I, I wrote the essay that, that, that exposed it and talked about why so many Indians refused to come into Iliff.
0: And it was because of that history. Yes. So as you say, the, the, the skin was repatriated. The book remains in Iliff's archives. Uh, you indeed started teaching at Iliff in the mid-80s. And I I want to talk a a little bit about the Indian understanding of life, because that is a view you have tried to bring throughout your career to students at ILIF. The Indian understanding of life, of the world, I think is very different from the white Christian understanding. In fact, ILIF offers a course called Indigenous Knowledges and Western Science, (laughs) which which you've taught. Could you give us an example of the contrast between these ideas that
8: you try to point out to students? Sure. Um, First of all, Indian cultures are spatial cultures, not temporal. And the Euro-Christian world is predominantly temporal. Are you saying spatial versus temporal? Yes. Tell me what that means. Uh, For us, where something happens is more more important than when it happens so that we didn't invent the seven-day week, we didn't invent the Sabbath, but but, but rather for us, ceremonies happen certain times of year, depending upon season, and the uh, uh, spatial arrangement between the sun and the moon and the earth. And then our ceremonies, and I tell my students that I love this, If you can't do it in 59 minutes and 59 seconds, the bishop is going to have you out on the Kansas State line. (laughs) For us, a ceremony might last four days or 12 days. In other words, time isn't an ingredient in terms of efficiency. It just is the necessity for taking care of the whole of a ceremony. So we're spatial.
0: Do you think that that leads to tensions beyond faith, for instance? Might that inform government? <clears throat> Might that inform health? I don't, could, well, does that connect
8: to the, the issues that, that Indian people struggle with today? The other major difference is that, that the your Christian world is hierarchical. Everything is up-down in, in terms of the metaphoric image of life. So you have a president— Congress and the people. You have a governor and legislature and the people. You have a, a, a priest and the lay people, a bishop and the priest. You have father, mother, children. And in the old scheme, of course, men ranked above women, right? Uh, until women started pushing back uh, you know, in the last century uh, rather steadily. Our, our world is more... I call it a collateral egalitarian uh, metaphoric schema where everybody's on the same plane. And people say, yeah, but you had chiefs. Hmm. Well, we did better than that. We had two in every village. One spatially aligned with the north or the sky people. The other spatially aligned with the earth this, the, the, the Earth people in the South, and they took turns every other day being in charge. Neither one had all that much authority. It was very discreetly bounded so that authority was actually distributed throughout the whole village.
0: I want to connect this to your work with Denver's Four Winds American Indian Survival Project, which tackles particularly urban issues for American Indians, homelessness among them. Uh, When you look at government or business, uh, what do you think could change to address inequalities that Indian people face? And, and, you know, perhaps connect that to these different views of power structures and solving
8: problems. These are all complex questions. Yes, I (laughs) we could go on for hours. I I could teach a 10-week course on each of these questions.
0: Right. And here we are in a show that's
8: timed we're, to 59 minutes and 59 yes, seconds. That's right. right. <laughs> let, let, let me say that, that one of the key issues, again, is space. We have a number of Indian organizations in Denver, agencies, the Indian Center, Denver Indian Health, Four Winds was one of those. None of them is very well funded. We're... we're as a result of 500 years of colonialism, we're rooted at the at the lowest rung, socioeconomic rung, of this continent. We're poor. In fact, the national unemployment rate uh, has been somewhere near 60% for American Indians. 60%? My On goodness. some reservations, ah. chronically 85 and 90%. Pine Ridge is at 85 and 90 percent, six hours away. Rosebud, seven hours away, same story. So that uh, what we need is some sort of economic base that will enable us to both be Indian and maintain our culture and at the same time, give us the resources to thrive.
0: Some of the nations that have thrived have done so on gambling, have done so on oil and gas exploration. For That's instance. right. Are, are those the kinds of streams you're talking about?
8: Not necessarily. Hmm. Oil and gas isn't sustainable. My nation is figuring that out because uh, we're, we're an oil and gas producing nation, one of the first uh, on the continent. And it's getting harder and harder to get the oil up to the surface because it's deeper and deeper in the ground. So eventually it is used up or becomes so ecologically damaging to access that we've got to ask ourselves whether it's ethically and morally right to do so.
0: Uh, Maybe we can wrap up by going back to where we started and the notion of this book that had been wrapped in the skin of an American Indian of an indigenous person.
8: The book remained throughout your career there. Well, it was on display at the school for 80 years. And my question is, how can a Christian school, a self-avowed practicing, professing Christian school, United Methodist, uh, keep a book like that on display as a trophy? And that book was taken off
0: display, but how did you come to peace with your President said, Iliff, how did you say, I'm going to be a part of this institution that made such a poor decision in your mind?
8: Well, as soon as I knew, this was back before there were these fancy smoke detectors everywhere in the building. Uh Uh, Back in 1985, I did take one of our medicines, uh, lit it, burned it, created smoke. And I took that smoke through every part of the building that I could reach. Uh, in order to purify it, especially my office I did that regularly even though there was a smoke detector I found ways of of, of smudging my office uh, you know just purifying it so that I could be there and so that I could be there in order to press Iiff to be more accountable and in fact over 30 years I finally have a president who is, much more accountable and is willing to be much more transparent about this. Uh, thanks for being with us. I, I think you're right. We could we could keep going,
0: but we've run out of time. How temporal of us. <laughs> Thank you. Good to be with you. Professor Tink Tinker is speaking with me in May of last year, shortly after he'd retired from Denver's Isle of School of Theology. The school launched a program to continue his work on indigenous cultures, and he'll be honored next month with the Walter Wink Scholar Activist Award. At the Denver Art Museum, thousands of tiny paintings are on display, and the artist is going to give them away for free when the exhibition closes. Denverite reporter Kevin Beatty just had to check this out.
6: When it opened in May, Denver artist Jonathan Size started describing his installation to me. It's a column of 10,000 mini paintings. The whole thing is
2: 8 feet tall, 33 feet around, and 10 feet in diameter.
6: When a visitor noticed him.
1: Oh my God, here he is talking about his artwork. Okay.
6: Miriam Williams was visiting the museum that day from Florida. How many years? 150
2: days.
1: Ten thousand in 150 days.
2: Yeah, so I've been very,
6: very, very busy, and you we just were
1: very diligent and dedicated. They're so intricate.
6: Some are portraits. Some contain little red ladybugs. Others just are smears of color. Here you have a, a gremlin with sapphire eyeballs. Each is a little two by two work of art, pretty in its own right, but part of an overwhelming spectacle when you see them together. When you step back, it almost looks like a pixelated landscape wrapped around the column. Size worked pretty much nonstop for those five months. He churned out an average of 66 paintings every day. Having so many to create gave him the chance to experiment with new ideas and techniques.
2: It feels like a launch pad for the, the rest of my studio practice. I'm finding that the other work that I'm making outside of this project is just activated and inspired. And I'm, I've never felt this exhausted, but I've never felt this connected to the work that I'm trying to do. And here's the kicker. You know what helps? Knowing that I was giving them all away for free at the end.
8: So you're going to deconstruct this?
2: Yep. This this just becomes
6: property of 10,000 different people at the end for free. For free. And that part's not just an afterthought. Saiz's installation is titled Study for Utopia. It imagines a world where art might be decoupled from commercial value. He says giving the paintings away to strangers is an exercise in making contemporary art more accessible. It's a way to question how we value the things that we own. Even the most personal things. He put a family heirloom inside one of his pieces.
2: Uh-huh. My, my engagement, my gold wedding ring... That was my father's from the '70s that I used to propose is in one of the pieces, and that will be given away too. Will you give that? Yeah, to yeah, yeah. Someone in your family? No, no. Just a. Ra- I hope a. I hope a kid gets it. But would they know the backstory? They might feel it and also the utopian ideals that inspired the whole thing. People are dying right now to mine more gold. I would rather. We moved away from sort of the value of those things and more towards the emotional value of those things. You, you, you've got me.
6: This is not the first time that size has given his work away. He partnered with Yo-Yo Ma to distribute 400 pieces during the Cellist tour launch last summer. That left him excited to distribute more at a larger scale, but he said it made some artists nervous. And so some of the feedback I've received is, if you're giving work away, aren't you devaluing art? What if people start expecting that art should be free? Artists already struggle, so it's a risk, right? Size said the art collecting world has become a small club. More people need an introduction to it. Nobody wins if nobody cares.
2: Right now, when we're all fighting for the tiniest section of art collectors to fund our dreams and wondering why it's getting narrower and narrower, that's because we're ignoring a whole section of people. More people have to fall in love with art and feel like their passion becomes collecting art, and if we do that to a bigger base of people, then there will be more people to fund your projects.
6: The museum has its first giveaway scheduled for November 23rd and 24th. Size's 10,000 mini paintings will be taken down from the gallery the week before. It's the last time they'll ever all be together. Kevin Beatty, Denverite.
0: And Denverite is part of CPR News. You can see Kevin's photos of some of these 10,000 paintings and get details on the giveaway at Denverite.com. And that's Colorado Matters for today from Studio 2A in snowy, cold centennial. I'm Ryan Morner, CPR News.